This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Tales from the Pros. Hope all of you are doing very, very well. This is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation here in Raleigh, North Carolina on this beautiful 75 degree weather day. (laughs) I have an awesome guest with me here today and he is the content marketing expert and keynote speaker, Michael Brenner. Michael, thank you so much for being with me today, man. I appreciate it. Michael, it's a real pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. So Michael, from what I, you know, I've done a lot of research on you and I know that you're a globally recognized keynote speaker. Uh, You speak around the country or even around the world. Is that right? Yep. Awesome. Uh, You're an author of The Content Formula, which we're going to talk about, and also the CEO of the Marketing Marketing Insider Group. Mm -hmm. And uh, you work with, you work in leadership positions in sales and marketing for global brands like SAP. Is it SAP or SAP? I always wondered that. Uh, they say it SAP. <laughs> okay, SAP. Uh, and Nielsen, as well as for thriving startups. So, Michael, thank you so much again for being with me, and I can't wait to uh, to talk with you. I think we're gonna we're gonna uh, have a great conversation here. So, yeah. um, so Michael, I I really you know we talked a little bit about this earlier, and I know you're super busy. Like we talked about, you're speaking around the country, around, around the world. You're CEO, and you're busy, you know, coaching different companies and large companies and startups and regards to their content marketing plans and strategies. With all that being said, how on earth do you have the time to post so much content on Twitter and all these social platforms? I mean, how do you do that? Is it, do you have like an automated approach or is it your team? Do you do it manually? Kind of what's your process? Because your content's amazing, by the way. It's just, there's so much of it where I'm like, how does he have time to do that? (laughs) It's it's all robotic, man. I just I've got an AI driven machine learning robot that does all the content creation sharing <laughs> for me. Uh, no, it's um it's a great it's a question I get quite a bit. And um, really, yeah, you know, and I kind of go back. I mean, I can explain sort of you know I could I could probably spend an hour talking about how I got to the point you know that I'm at. But but it all really started with you know when I first started. Um, writing and blogging and, and the first mm-hmm. blog post I wrote was that, Hey, I'm, you know, there's a million blogs out there and, and I'm here because I want to share what I know and share things that might be helpful, you know, for folks that are experiencing the challenges that I'm, I'm experiencing. And, yeah. and so at that time I committed to, you know, I'm going to write one blog post a week and I'm going to share, you know, like four or five things on Twitter every day and maybe one thing on LinkedIn. And, and, you know, what I ended up doing over the years, that was probably nine, I guess about almost nine years ago is I started realizing that some things worked and some things didn't. And some platforms, you know, it, it makes sense to to publish more and to share more and some to some, you know, platforms it doesn't. And so yeah. I'm, you know, constantly testing it. Like even this week, for example, I'm moving from instead of one 1,000 blog post, uh, um, you know, per uh, uh, or two per week, I'm doing wow. one 2,500 word post this week and for the next three weeks. And, and you know, so I'm basically always testing frequency. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like a platform like Twitter, it moves so fast. I've got some semi-automation there. So for example, when sites like, you know, Jay Bear or Content Marketing Institute or some folks that I really, marketing profs, people that I really respect, when they share content, right. I automatically share some of that stuff because I know it's good. I know it's helpful. You know, it meets all my criteria. When I do, you know, sharing of my own stuff, that's all manual. So 
you know, it looks like a lot. It's mostly, um, it's mostly manual when it comes from me. It's mostly automated when it comes from somebody else, but I would still say manually curated, you know, in some form or fashion or filtered at some point. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of, I always tell people that the, the trick in content marketing and even in marketing overall, I think is, is building a machine that consistently reaches and engages people. And, and it's not, it's not any one thing doesn't really help you. It's the machine itself that, you know, once you get it built, you can start to fine tune it. And that's really the trick to being successful, I think, in today's age. Wow. Amazing. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, I saw some of your past interviews as well. And, and, uh, and I saw some of your, uh, your talks on YouTube at the Content Marketing Institute and some other, some other conferences as well. And you talk about your, you know, basically for you, the way, the way you write content, right. And you upload it on, on all these different social platforms, you're not doing it in certain, like you don't wake up in the morning and say, Oh, for these next two hours, you're not going to just socialize. You kind of do it sporadically through the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that engages a lot of your audience. Cause you know, cause you know, nowadays things are so robotic. You, you mentioned this before things are so robotic and people don't want to feel that you're just kind of spamming out posts. So mm -hmm. when you do it sporadically, it's kind of like as corny as it sounds, it's coming from the heart mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah, basically, you know, I've got about 13 tabs open in my Chrome browser right now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> starting with Hootsuite and my inbox and my other inbox and Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, Buffer. And, you know, so yeah, it, 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 all of these platforms, I'm basically cycling through, you know, I don't want to say hourly, um, but, you know, probably, you know, I do about 50 minutes of work every hour and, and five minutes of, of, you know, of quick filtering and sharing and five minutes to try to stand up and take a drink and go to the bathroom and maybe yeah. have a snack, you know? So, I mean, that's pretty much every hour of the day for me. That's cool. That's cool. I love it. It's kind of, kind of like how I am as well. I uh, pretty much just do it on my own time sporadically, but we have certain processes that we follow mm -hmm. too. And we'll talk about that. So uh, and this is what I, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. So, Everyone knows you as, you know, you're a marketing expert. You work with large, you know, large enterprise customers uh, and like I said, thriving startups as well. Um, but what really inspired you, Michael, to getting in this, in this space? Mm -hmm. You know, were you always, did you always have a passion for, for marketing? Not content per se, but marketing, like when you were back in college or when you were a kid, what, what really, what was, what was your purpose and drive behind all this? That's a really, I mean, I, I you know, de depending on how far back you go, I can get more and less specific. So, <laughs> so like if we go back to, you know, high school, college, like I, I've got four kids now and I've got one who's in high school and, and thinking about colleges and, and, you know, I tell them, Hey, you know, it's rare for somebody to know in high school what the heck they're going to do in life. And, and, mm -hmm. and I didn't even really know in college. I mean, I knew what subjects I was good at um, and, and which ones I struggled with. Um, I, I knew early on I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to get into the business world. Um, I thought I could be effective. You know, I thought about consulting. I thought about, um, you know, finance. I thought about, you know, different kinds of things. And, and yeah. you know, like most people, I think in the world, I just took the first job that I got. <laughs> and, um, you know, it had really nothing. I was an English lit major, so it really had nothing to do uh, with, with, my, with my degree. Um, but from that point forward, you know, I just, it's just been one continuous cycle of what's working, what do I like, what, um, what do I seem, you know, what do I have an interest in learning about? And mm -hmm. I actually, I actually have a term for this is uh, I love Venn diagrams and I believe that everything in life can be explained in one. And so I have a Venn diagram for, um, uh, 
for, for happiness in life. And it's what do you know, what do you love, and what does the world actually want? And the intersection of those three things is essentially, you know, it's, it's kind of like every job I look back on was essentially, you know, I was in one or two of those buckets, but not all three. And, and it's, you know, slowly, yeah. I think we all sort of, you know, start getting to the center of that, of those three circles. And, you know, and I'd say that I'm lucky enough to say I'm there now, uh, but it's really just been, you know, Hey, I, you know, I was in sales and, and uh, what I found was that, you know, trying to sell really hard didn't work, but sitting back and listening to customers and helping them face their challenges that worked. So then I thought, you know, if I could do this at scale, that'd be a lot more fun. And that was really, that's marketing, right? If you can help customers at scale, that's kind of marketing. So I moved, yeah, into, you know, I moved into marketing following that. And then, you know, I saw a lot of people creating brochures and, you know, spending hours in meetings talking about colors of logos and fonts. And I'm like, well, that's not for me. Um, but, you know, there is a kind of marketing that does work. And, you know, at the time it was like SEO and, and paid search and, um, you know, web, even even just building a website you know, for some companies. Right, right, right. And, and basically, yeah. you know, I went through, I guess, what we now call digital marketing and some sometimes and some people called and call inbound marketing. But ultimately, it just, you know, it was me following that, you know, what do I love? What do I know? And what actually works? And that, you know, for me has been you know, some form of, let's call it content marketing, thought leadership, um, digital marketing, um, storytelling, you know, those are really the things that uh, in, in different, you know, sort of uh, conversations and audiences, those are the kinds of topics that I, I would say I found that I know I love and, and I think really work. Do you think that you're, I mean, I mean, you being a marketer, having all this experience, do you consider yourself a, a people person? Because you know, what's crazy. I've, I've heard a lot, I've heard some marketers, uh, in different industries that would mention that they weren't really necessarily people like, like a, a, they had good communication skills with people. They were just very strategic. I don't know if I completely agree with that. You know, like, I mean, for, do you consider yourself a people person ever since you were, since you were little? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, 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 yeah, and me too. you know, and I want to like almost um, actually kind of uh, say that I'm actually an introvert, which, which is, you know, it's it's not it's not somebody who's shy, and that's one of the things that some people think that introverts are just shy. And and I, although I was very shy as a child, um, <laughs> but you know, and my, I have a brother who's an extreme extrovert, and he's you know, and he loves people as much as I do. He just has a different way of of essentially getting energy. What what I find as an introvert is that I get a tremendous amount of energy when I hang out with smart people that people that I like in a small group, and we have deep conversations about you know sometimes it's about fun stuff, sometimes it's about important stuff, but you know small group interactions is where I get my energy. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, you know, and I love to speak on stage. A, a lot of speakers like like me are introverts, and it's um, and part of it is because I think we see the audience as an individual, you know, we're, I, when I'm on stage, I'm connecting with one person in the audience generally, or a few that I think right. might be interested in, might need to hear what I have to say. I don't, I don't see a mass of people. I think for extroverts, it's a different experience. I think, you know, they're, they're sort of feeding on the energy of the crowd. Um, for me, it's really a personal connection. And so, yeah, I mean, I absolutely thrive, you know, uh, in, in the thought of being able to help people. And, um, it's what, you know, got me into marketing and got me to where I think I am today. Yeah, that's great. I, I think, I think it makes a whole lot of difference when, um, you, you have that energy, um, behind what you do and that passion. And I think, uh, and I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I just love people. I mean, this, this is one of the main reasons why I have this podcast. I love interviewing people and learning about people's stories. And that's helped me to become 
good in marketing, I, I, at least for in my opinion, obviously I'm biased, but you know, I, I would think that that's helped me to get to where I am as well, because I love talking to people and learning about them. And that helps me understand my audience. Right. And it seems like you're kind of the same way. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually have a little cheat sheet kind of on my desk here and it's, it's the letters T O E. Uh, and it's, it's sort of the, uh, not to get too spiritual, but it's kind of the um, uh, the meditation I give myself every morning when I start the day. But it's mm-hmm. it's you know and end the day really. It's I you know I, I really I, I strive to be thankful. That's the T. Optimistic and empathetic, and and empathy is really where I think that people component comes in. Um, you know, thank being thankful and optimistic helps me to be you know humble and sort of positive, a positive force in the world. But um, but the empathetic you know empathy part is. Um, something that I, comes naturally for me and always has. I'm a middle child, and maybe that's part of it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it it's that connection. You know, that thought of being able to help somebody was a really early insight. Like I said in my career as a salesperson, where I thought, you know, hey, I've got this thing, I should go sell it. That didn't work for me. But when I sat back and said, hey, you know, there's a there's a, a guy or a gal across the desk here who's got real problems, and I I might be able to help them with that. And and if you know if I can kind of empathetically show them what those solutions might be, I've, I found real success in sales. And, and that same kind of empathy has helped me in, in, um, you know, in the marketing space. I, we may come back to this topic. I, I know you wanted to talk about empathy at some yeah, point, absolutely. But, no, I love but, it. Uh, I, but yeah, it's, it's I, a yeah. real key for me. And, and, and it's, it's a driving force, I'd say in the way um, that I approach the world. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I, I think empathy is, is huge and having the right intent behind everything, not just not just in your career or in, in marketing or in, in your content creation, but I think in, in life is um, is very important um, being empathetic towards people. But yeah, we'll definitely touch on that in, in a little mm-hmm. bit. But I want to talk about, you know, I, I I know that you have a lot of experience in 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 t- coaching companies um, and helping them strategize and plan um, and companies that are more B2B. Um, and you have experience in B2C as well, right? Or is it more B2B? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I spent a lot, of, a lot of my career in, in the B2B space. Um, yeah. But but most of it's interesting. Like at Nielsen, um, it was a B2B company, but all of the all of our customers were consumer brands, you know, Coca-Cola, Wrigley Gum, um, you know, Lean Curtis, Sargento Cheese. So, uh, right. so I've always had the B2B to C kind of perspective. Um, since I've been out on my own, uh, you know, it's probably 50, 50. I've, I've got financial service companies. I've got healthcare companies. I've got, uh, even apparel brands. Um, you know, so it's, it's about 50, 50 B2B and B2C. The one thing that, uh, the common thread for me, is is pretty much considered purchase you know like a financial services company is a consumer brand but they're considered yeah. purchase right you need to think about whether you want to get a mortgage or you know what kind of 401k loans you know or loans you're going to get um it, healthcare you know in many cases is considered purchase um and b2b obviously software is considered purchase by considered i mean there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions and a lot of information that needs to flow um, unlike, yeah. unlike a stick of gum, you know, Hey, I'm standing at the, you know, checkout line at the grocery store and my, my breath might be stinky. So I'm going to buy some gum, <laughs> not really too much consideration <laughs> there. So, you know, some of those kind of consumer brands are not necessarily, um, you know, right for me, but I have, I have done some work for those as well. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I you see all these, there's so much noise out there, right? And you know this, there's so much noise, there's so much clutter out there and all these social platforms, there's a lot of content, um, and it just seems like it's getting harder and harder to break through that clutter and through that noise. 
what do you consider like good content for B2B companies? Mm-hmm. What do you consider good content and bad content? I, I mean, I think a lot of people can really learn, you know, uh, uh, these marketers that are are writing content and distributing content for their their and their whether it's a small company or a large company it doesn't matter but whether they're you know I just kind of want you to provide some type of formula or something mm-hmm. that's going to help a lot of people in regards to their good content or bad content yeah I I love I love this question and by love I mean hate <laughs> um, somebody once asked me what do you that's how I'm asking yeah it. what do you do what do you choose to write about and I was like you know the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about what should I write about is what really makes me angry and. Um, so mm-hmm. your question, not the question itself or you, um, I appreciate the question, uh, but this topic actually makes me really frustrated because I think there's a lot of folks that, you know, whether it's, it's their intuition or it's natural instinct, or there's, you know, I think, um, you know, consultants who've never spent an hour inside an actual corporate marketing department, um, you know, saying, oh, you know, the days of, of more are over. We need to create better content. And, you know, you need to choose quality over quantity. It, it's, it, mm-hmm. I almost feel like I'm the only person out there saying that that's all BS. And not that it's, I mean, not that they're wrong. And what I mean by that is I would never recommend somebody to create crappy content. But my point is that we do live in a world where there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of content and it's only increasing. But what most people miss and forget and and maybe don't realize is we also live in a world where we're consuming more content and we are, and the kinds of content that we consume is a knowable thing. Like if you, if you set out to learn what kinds of content resonate with your audience, you can learn that in the digital world that we live in. And there's free tools that I, you know, I use with my clients all the time. And, you know, I was just with, with somebody last Thursday and, and their minds were blown because of a free tool that anybody can use to tell you exactly what questions your customers are asking. So my answer, the formula and, and the reason I get so mad is because everybody's like, don't create more. Well, no, the answer is you need to be the best answer to your customer's questions and answer as many questions as you know the answer to. So don't yeah. tell people to stop creating content. You know, you're going to, you're going to be left behind, but you know, mm-hmm. if you truly have a desire, like, like, you know, like I think many of us do to help our audiences, you know, navigate the challenges that we all face in this world, then, then create more better content. So that's the, the formula for me, aside from more better is what, what is better? What is good content? And for me, it's simple. It's a low, it's a, it's going to sound like a low bar, but it's basically just answer adequately answer the question that your customers may be asking. Like for me, it's, you know, uh, what is content marketing? What's the difference between content and content marketing? Um, what's the ROI of content marketing? What does a good content marketing strategy look like? How do I develop a content marketing strategy? Do you have a template for content marketing? Do, you know, do, what's the, you know, should I create more or should I create more higher quality? Like all of these questions are good questions that I try to answer in the content that I create. And I'm, I, I would never say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to only answer one question really well. Uh, no, I'm going to try to answer as many of those questions as I can. Um, as well as I can. The other analogy, and, and if you'll if you'll allow me, <laughs> to, yeah, because sure. I think analogies help. Another analogy I use with people is like it's like food. It's like eating. Like you would never tell somebody, "Hey, um, only go out to one restaurant in the next you know ten days." 
and, but go to the best restaurant in the world. You would never tell that to somebody. We eat every day. We eat sometimes three, sometimes seven, sometimes 10 times a day. Sometimes that yeah. stuff we eat is, you know, it's a bag of chips. And sometimes it's a really good steak from a great restaurant. The bottom line is that we're eating regularly every single day and we're choosing different levels of quality every time we eat. So as a brand creating content, we should seek to create as much content as we can that's not bad, right? No one seeks to create a meal that stinks. No one seeks to go out and eat a meal that stinks, right? So so make it edible. <laughs> make it a good answer mm -hmm. to a decent That's a, a great you know? analogy. I so, love so, it. Yeah, that's yeah. so it's you know, it's like hey, you know, don't create stuff that makes people barf. But, you know, but, but so make it edible and make as much of it as you can. And every once in a while, make it great, you know, and that's, I think, the formula for great content. So it's a lot about consistency, but I mean, and that, that's the thing I want to talk about on the quality side of things. You know, what's considered, because I have this question mm. too, what's considered good quality? Yeah. You know, is it... Is it the types of images to use? Is it the, is it the, the, the um, you know, maybe video? Is it the length of the video? Is it the quality of the video? Or do you think it's more about the overall message? Do you think it's not even necessarily the, the, the types of content like video or, or audio or, uh, or written? Or do you think it's the actual message that you're trying to portray to, to your target mm. audience? Yeah, you're, you're leaning into um, or, or sort of inferring Another one of my favorite ranty kind of uh, questions, <laughs> and it yeah. was something I faced at a former company with a with a boss who was really smart and um, and and I had a lot of respect for, but who uh, who who you know he and I disagreed um, pretty adamantly about this topic, and and it was what I called the unique point of view trap, and mm -hmm. I was you know as you can hear me you know explaining in some of these questions, I believe in consistent quality content, you know answer your customers questions every single day as you know or as, or as often as you can as well as you can and his point of view was no we should only create content that reflects our unique point of view and my response was that if we create you know the tree that falls in the forest that no one's around to hear then it doesn't have an impact so you know <laughs> so there's sort of a middle ground here but but my 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 response and I actually wrote a, an article that now ranks for the term what is thought leadership um to me, thought leadership is not necessarily about being unique, but it's about being uniquely valuable. And and so I, oh I don't God. buy unique selling propositions because no, you know what? Here, I, this is the truth that no one wants to talk about. Nobody cares about what you sell. Nobody cares about your product. No one really cares about how unique you are. People just want the solution that's right for them at the time that they're seeking. Oh, I love, Michael, I, I want to stop there. I love. <laughs> I, want, I want to take take a second to mar for for people to marinate that for that to mm -hmm. marinate. Uh, Let it marinate because I completely agree with that. Um, I think there's so much salesy content mm -hmm. crap out yeah. there, uh, and you can tell from the passion of my voice, right? Because you see so much of this out there all over, especially on Facebook and Twitter. And, and actually I, me and Jay Bayer talked about this a few weeks ago. There's just, there's so much salesy content. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and anyways, sorry for interrupting you, no. but I thought I wanted to take, take a second for people to, for, for that to kind of yeah. marinate, because I think, I think people need to realize that you don't have to just directly sell something mm -hmm. through your content. You can do it indirectly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. and again, it's a, it's about you know awesome. we we choose the brands who who we believe are uniquely valuable, not the brands that mm -hmm. we think are just unique. Like no one says, "Hey, I'm going to go buy that, um, you know, buy that piece of software because it's really unique." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it doesn't happen. Like, hey, we we looked at software solutions available in the marketplace, and this was the one that was uniquely valuable to us. And so, it you know, nobody cares about what you sell. They only care whether it meets their needs. And so, you know, that's why I come back, you know, I come back to that with content. Um and I do think we should marinate on that thought. It's it's also true with content itself. And, and I do a lot of coaching with executives who are, want to become spokespeople and want to become thought leaders and want to become recognized in their industry as experts. And they, you know, a lot of them, and I was in the same boat, a lot of them really fear that first post that they're going to write because they're like, oh, every word is going to, is going to, you know, potentially damage re- my reputation. And I have the same conversation with them. I'm, nobody cares about whether your your post yeah. is 500 or 535 words. Nobody cares if, you know, you have the greatest picture, you know, to support your your content in the world as long as it's not, you know, stolen or copyright infringed. You know, like there's just there's a, there, there's a bar we have to get over. After that, people are just really, you know, asking the question, is this answering, is this, you know, answering a question I have, solving a problem that I have, or or entertaining me in some way. And and that's really it. So yeah, I think we, you know, we just it's these are all counterintuitive things. We'll get to that. Um, I want to get to that later, but but you know, I think the secret to success in marketing is often these counterintuitive um, realizations that you know, if we just let go of that natural instinct to want to sell all the time and open up and be real people, we can actually engage at a lot higher rates. That's awesome. I love it. Absolutely love it. And, and you know, when you coach a lot of these uh, companies, do you, they probably ask you, hey, Michael, I want a marketing plan and I want a marketing strategy, or they probably ask you for one or the other. Do you kind of specify what they need exactly. I mean, what's, cause I know there's a difference and I saw a social, I saw a, a post on, on your mm-hmm. Twitter about this and really the differences, differences between a marketing plan and a marketing mm-hmm. strategy. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, that was my first, uh, this, this is my first test in the 2,500 word, um, uh, <laughs> our blog article. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a question. It's a question I get all the time. What's the difference between a strategy and a plan? And interestingly, and this is something I, I learned when I first launched, uh, the business, thinking that I was going to be doing a lot of work in with with brands that that needed help with with their strategy. And when I went out and I started talking to folks that I knew and people in the industry and and you know prospects and leads a lot of them said to me you know my job is to develop the strategy I don't need you for that. Uh, you know I need the plan, I need the tactics, I need the execution. And so you know what I learned very quickly was well okay let me see it. Oh, well, you know, it's, I mean, it kind of sits in different places. It's in my inbox and, you know, I gave that presentation. It's confidential. It, it, the, the bottom right. line is everybody thinks they have a strategy. Many people think they own developing a strategy and so few people have actually written it down. So few people have actually uh, documented it, shared it with anybody and gotten approval on it. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that's one of the main differences. One of the main key differentiators to successful marketers that I see is that they've got a strategy that they've, they've they've not only thought about, but that they've identified and they've documented it. And then they've shared that. They've gotten approval from their boss and they've shared that with their teams to gain alignment of, you know, strategy. Many people, you know, there's a lot of analogies on strategy. And, um, you know, for me, it's just, hey, what's, where are we going? And how will we know we got there? You know, it's just simple things like that. Like, what is the goal and how are we going to know we achieved it? Um, you know, so is that based on, is that kind of more based on analytics and research, you think? 
or is a lot of it just yeah so so for me i would think so I right mean, I, I spend when, when i do a strategy uh when i work on strategy with clients um i actually i use surprisingly few inputs from them and and the reason i do that is i say listen i want to build a picture of the world according to the world not according to you and you know according to your customers i want to know i want to present back to you a mirror image of what you look like to your customers not what you think you look like right and and then start walking through the you know the strategic framework um, steps of getting to a defined strategy, and so it's it. I always say that there's a certain magic that happens when we do that. Um, I start with an assessment of sort of like here's what good looks like, here's what you look like, and here's the gap and how we can fill it. I mean that's basically it. And mm-hmm. there's always a certain magic in that happens in the rooms where I present the, that kind of assessment. Um, where senior people, mid-level people, junior people, and and mostly the newest people are like, you know, jumping up and down in praise of of what we're what we're talking about. But the magic is that there's alignment in that it's it's impossible to disagree with it. It's not opinion, it's fact. And so it's definitely yeah. research-based. Um, and again, back in the, you know, back to this digital world we live in, it's a knowable thing. Like I can tell you what your fair, you know, your online share of 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 voices. You know, I can tell you how many people search for your company versus how many people search for the category of the product that you you sell versus how many people search for your competitors. I can tell you how much content you create that you think is awesome that actually stinks and never gets shared or seen by anybody. And so it's, you know, those kinds of factual statements, I you know, obviously without being overly critical, are all taken in, in the context and, you know, constructive context of, you know, how do we actually build something that makes sense so that the whole team can get on board? And then the second magical moment is then the plan. So the plan is, okay, we've got a strategy. Right. We know where we are and where we need to go. The plan is how to fill that gap. And and the, the second magical moment is when the whole team gets on board and says, hey, you know, there's 10 of us. And if I do one little piece and he does another little piece and she does another little piece, the 10 of us working together can create amazing you know, uh, um, uh, amazing amounts of impact for the, for the organization and for the customers we're trying to reach. So it, you know, I really love, um, you know, as exhausting as these workshops that I do sometimes can be, I'm almost always just energized and grateful coming out of them, you know, just grateful for what I get to do (laughs) in life because, um, you know, I just think that it, it fills a gap that a lot of folks have. That's cool. So you, so I would say from uh, talk my analogy. Uh, this is this might even be a bad analogy, and I want you to let me know if it is. So let me see if I can if I can do this right. So a good analogy of a marketing plan and marketing strategy is the strategy is really the engine of the car, and the plan is essentially the wheel. Hmm. I would say. Th- what do you think yeah, about that? Because don't you think analogy. the plan is what executes, but the strategy is really what's done behind the scenes. It's really something that you don't yeah. see. So I, I mean, and again, this is just, I, I think that analogy works. I think at, at another layer, you know, if you look, if you look outside of the car, you could say that the strategy is where the car is going and the car is the plan to get there. <laughs> and, and the, you know, so, so, you know, you, I, the, the wheels and, and the, there's fuel, right? There's an engine. So I, I think, you know, I could expand upon it, but I still think that the car works. You, you know, I think the engine and the wheels definitely work as well. Yeah, I like your analogy better. Well, moving on. Uh, <laughs> um, so what do you actually see with your, your experience in, in working with B2B companies uh, and them doing their marketing and their content and, and working through their plans and strategies? What do you actually see? Like, What do they have to go through to actually see a large positive impact on their 
video, written, audio content? Mm-hmm. What, like, what, what do you actually see? Where do you see the impact? Do you see it more from video or written or you think everything? Yeah, I, I mean, you're hitting on all of my favorite um, ranty subjects. So, Because uh, I love video yeah. stuff. I, I love watching video. I think it's kind of more engaging than reading a blog. Yeah, but that's no, just no, me. I don't disagree with that at all. The, but the, the, um, the answer to that question is it depends. It's kind of a typical consultant mm-hmm. answer. But, but, yeah. but the, um, the challenge that I put to people that ask me that is, is you know, if you ask that of Google, which, piece, which types of content does Google like better? It, it depends. And, 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 you know, the actual algorithm for Google, I, I call it the three V's. Google ranks sites that provide value, volume, and variety. And so you need all three. If you just wrote one great long blog post that's all text, Google's not going to, you know, probably not going to rank your site for that, um, for that keyword. Yeah. But if you write 10 of them and you, you create a video, an infographic, a podcast, a long form article, an ebook, a short list, you know, if you do the value, volume and variety, that's how you're going to see impact. So, you know, that's really the secret. It's the kind of, it's kind of an SEO, um, sort of, you know, nerdy answer, but it's, it's true. So, you know, should you create more video? Yeah. I mean, in general, as a society, we're consuming more video. Video is more engaging, I think, than text. It's kind of lean back. Um, you know, it's lean back kind of content, as they say, versus text, which is lean in content. It takes more effort. Um, but you, you know, you really need both. And that's the answer. If you want to be considered, if you want to be engaging, if you want to rank for certain keywords, you need to do, you know, you need to do all three of those V's value. You know, it has to be good, a good answer to a question volume, you need to consistently create it and variety. You need, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at a Google search engine, search engine results page, you'll see at the top, it says, you know, web images, video, you know, like there's different varieties of content that, that they're serving up when you, when you type in a question into Google. So I think we all need to do the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, you know, because I'll tell you with, with our company, when we had to rank, you know, I told you we I have a, a tech technology company here in Raleigh, and we, I mean, we were not ranked at all. Obviously, when you start a business, you're not ranked. You're starting from nothing, and we're in a very competitive market in web development, web design, um, you know, software development, and essentially, you know, we had to. Well, our strategy was for SEO, and this goes kind of goes back to content. Is we gave, I call it the give back approach. So we would write content for a lot of these publications. And I know this is offsite optimization. It's there's the SEO has, is a combination of onsite, which is your, you know, your keyword optimization on your website, your blogging, all that, right. Your keyword research. And then the offsite offsite is like, excuse me, offsite is, you know, social media and the, the, the content that you write to these other publications. And that's really what we did. We, we gave back to our audience. Right. So I think, you're right. It's it's a combination of different things. Um, it's not just video or or video or written. Um, you know, we kind of did it all, and it worked, and, and we're ranked for for a lot of mm-hmm. different keywords. Um, so I, I think that's cool. It's good to kind of get that reassurance. I'm sure a lot of people mm-hmm. have that question. You know, and, and what do you think about? You know, I want to jump to a little bit of regards to paid content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, Facebook. When they went public, right, it was it was a lot easier before they went public to get to to basically be seen. But now you'll see that it's a lot at least from what I think, it's a lot harder. I mean Jay Bayer were talking about this a few weeks ago that once Facebook went public, obviously they're you know, they they want to make more money, they're they're 
you know, I, I get it. Trust me, I, I understand it. But the thing is, is like, do you do you agree with that? What do you think about that in regards to paid versus organic content on Facebook or, or even some of these other mm-hmm. platforms? Yeah, I, this is another you know area where I think I have a a different perspective maybe than some other folks. And um, you know, and I, I love Jay. I've talked to him a lot about this. And you know, I think what happened is there were folks who got onto Facebook back when you could and and be successful with that. And then they saw their success diminish and and they freaked out. Um, mm-hmm. I never had that experience. And and part of the reason for that is I've been preaching this this sort of message of of don't create content create a destination that, that, you know, where you can, you can become recognized as an authority on a topic, um, a destination that you own. And so a Facebook company page is not a destination you own because Facebook can, can turn you off. They can give you no traffic. They can, you know, they own it. You, you may think you own it, but they can turn it off. They can, they right. can change the, the exposure to it. But you know, your web, your company.com, your website or a blog um, that you may you may have as a subdomain of your of your website, that's something you own. No one can take that away from you. And so I always looked at Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and now even Instagram and and you know Pinterest and God forbid Snapchat um, as just you know distribution mechanisms, you know, taking taking the the the, the messages and the the content I was creating that answered questions and sending it out into the world to the people that were asking those questions and and on the platforms of, that people use to engage. Um, so, you know, that's the first thing. Content marketing requires this perspective and this belief and understanding that it, you you are publishing first on the destinations that you own and you look at those those other places, those social media outlets as as you know, as destinations where you can engage people where they are. So that's the first important point. The second thing on your question, specifically on paid and organic, is that, yeah, I mean, it's becoming very, very difficult to gain exposure um, organically on Facebook. There are people that are actually doing it. Um, You know, those uh, recipe uh, sites, (laughs) they're doing a great job with those little, you know, 30 second video uh, recipe videos and and things like that. Millions yeah, of man. views and it's ways crazy. to do it. But, but the bottom line is uh, w- when I consult with companies, I tell them, I use the, the one third rule. You should spend, think about in your first year, spend about a third of your, of your budget on building the destination. And that would be with somebody like you, you know, building out a website, a web presence, a customer experience that's, that's digital mm-hmm. and modern and, and engaging. Spend the other third on creating content. You've got to invest in creating customer-focused content, and then figuring out how to optimize the journey down to a you know to a lead or a sale or whatever it is. The third piece of that budget is is distribution, and I would call it paid distribution. You know, over over other terms like paid media or whatever. Um, and what I mean by that is you know, boosts on Facebook or sponsored updates on LinkedIn, which are really, really effective for a lot of my B2B clients. Um, or even recommendation engines like Outbrain and Taboola. These are these are all content distribution platforms. They're not necessarily paid ads. And there's a difference. Like, you know, I can go on Facebook and see an ad for fish oil. That's a paid ad. <laughs> but if I go on Facebook yeah. and I see and I see yeah. a boost of a post that says, hey, fish oil can help you lower your cholesterol and, and improve your heart health. Um, and it's written by a doctor on Cleveland Clinic's website, you know, I'm much more likely to engage in that piece of content. That's the difference between content distribution and paid ads. And so, you know, those are the approaches that I recommend to people is, is write great content on the destination you own, and then make sure you've got some budget to distribute that content. And there's a whole, we could spend a whole nother hour on that topic as well. What's the right way, you know, to do that. But, but that's the approach I would think, you know, people need to start with. 
That's cool. I love I love how you said that the, the difference between distribution and actual paid content. I don't think a lot of people think about that. Uh, I think you know. I definitely think that there can be a plan implemented uh, for that as well. I know that you probably talk to a lot of your uh, enterprise level customers mm-hmm. about that, right? In regards to how to actually mm-hmm. execute that uh, properly. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I love it. <clears throat> so I want to jump here. Regard. I know this is probably your favorite. Yeah, your favorite question. Mm. Empathy. Okay. All right. So I believe in this strongly. I believe that if you have the right intent and motive behind what you're doing, that you'll be successful. I, I think you can engage and reach a lot of people the right way and make a difference, a positive difference, if you have the right intent. And even Google has a lot of um, articles written about this, that their algorithm is even so complex, complex that they can even they can even monitor the intent mm-hmm. behind your content. Now, they're not going to say whether you're a good person or a bad person or whatever it is, but they're going to know what your motives are, right? If you're trying to be salesy or if you're trying to actually engage your audience the right way by providing value, right? And that's the way I think of it in regards to uh, creating content. I think you have to have the right intent and be empathetic towards your audience when creating any type of content. And I think even that goes to uh, building your, when you're building your business, uh, that goes, that goes to when you're trying to uh, even sell a customer. I think you're, you're not doing it just to make a quick buck. You're actually doing it mm-hmm. to help people. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we mentioned this earlier. Um, it's a guiding, you know, sort of principle for, for, for my whole life and, and career, obviously. But but it, it, it also happens to be stuff that work. It, it be an approach that works. And that that's the thing. Uh, so, you know, it, yeah, I yeah. wrote a post on LinkedIn. And it, was, it was empathy is the counterintuitive secret to success. And, and kind of the talk track or the thinking, the step-by-step thinking there is, um, you know, one of the first questions I asked as a marketer was, why do we create so much stuff that stinks? Why do, why do we get asked by our product teams to create product content and brochures that nobody wants to read? Why do we get asked by executives to throw our, you know, our logo on a billboard on the side of a highway that no one really gives a crap about? You know, what is the reason for that? And, and what I learned What's is reason, that, yeah. you know, it's a natural instinct, right? So that's what, that's kind of the empathy part. Like I tried to empathize with these requests that I knew for stuff that I knew wouldn't work and tried to understand them. And what I realized is it's, it's, it's our natural instinct as human beings to do that. And, you know, it's it, the analogy I always use is I don't put pictures of what I look like when I first wake up in the morning or after a bad, you know, night out with my buddies. I put, you know, I put the pictures <laughs> of my kids when they look really cute and they're having fun and, you know, pictures, selfies of me and my wife at a, you know, on a tropical vacation when we're, you know, when we're tan and, you know, we've got margaritas in our hand. Like we, we always want to present the best picture of ourselves. That's our natural instinct right. to do that as human beings. And, and it's the same, it's true for us as, as professionals as well. The executives and every person, and we love our companies. We even love our products, many of us. And, and so it's counterintuitive empathy because we have to resist that natural tendency to promote what's great about what we do and where we work and what we sell. And, and we have to resist that natural tendency and that's where empathy comes in. So it's empathy for our customers. Mm -hmm. We have to ask, what do they care about and what, what are their challenges? And, and, you know, it's interesting too, for many companies, the mission statement of the founders of companies often are very empathetic. You know, the, the, you know, the various innovations in the world started by a really unique perspective on a customer problem. And it was the understanding of the problem that led to the unique insight that drove the solution, not, hey, I'm going to create a widget today. 
And, and so, you know, I, I often challenge companies to go back to that founding sort of mission. Um, in my workshops, I actually, I, I actually force my, my teams to, to define a content marketing mission that's really, truly empathetic. Um, but then, then the next question is, okay, well, how do you sell empathy? How do you sell the power of empathy to executives that don't have any? <laughs> um, and the bottom line is, is it yeah. works. And, and I use another Venn diagram and the Venn diagram is pretty simple. I use this in probably every presentation I've ever given in the last eight years. On the left-hand side is that natural instinct to talk about what we sell, what we know, what we love, um, our products. On the right-hand side is what our audience is actually interested in. And, and it, this is a noble thing. In today's world, Google can tell us that people are interested in you know, cat, uh, you know, kitten, puppy, and baby videos and lots of gifts and, and you know, um, listicles and what Disney princess are you? And, you know, but there is right, an overlap. Right. There's an overlap between what the world is interested in and the things that you actually have a passion about inside your company. And that's the expertise that you have. And so that overlap mm-hmm. is the, it's, that's the empathy. That's what we, what, you know, the things, you know, how it overlaps with the things that the world is interested in. And when, and when companies create content around their expertise as opposed to their products, it actually engages their audience and that engagement drives conversions and that conversions leads to sales. And so the answer to how do you sell empathy to executives that don't have any is that empathy works. And and the content formula, the book that I wrote, um, actually talks about the mathematical formulas that identify how you can kind of answer that question for executives that maybe don't have empathy and don't think their job is to care about customers, you can show them that it actually makes financial sense to do so. And, and, you know, not just in a 10% improvement kind of way, but in a 300, 400, 500% improvement kind of way. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I, I completely agree with that. I think we have to really focus on our audience and our cause ask them, ask mm-hmm. questions about them, right? Focus on them instead of ourselves. I know sometimes we're, we get caught up in ourselves and how we're going to be successful, how we're going to make money, but mm-hmm. it's really about them, right? Because if without them, right. then we're nothing, right? So we, we have to focus on our audience and, and how we're going to provide value to them. And you know, what's kind of cool is that, um, just over, over the years of experience and, um, in, in building applications and, and websites and so on, we've learned as well as a company that that you, you're going to build, you're going to basically increase the amount of money that you're going to make on your, for example, your website. If you talk about like the conversions, you're going to increase conversion rate when the content is focusing on the mm-hmm. on your actual audience. Because you notice you go on a lot of websites, right? And it keeps mm-hmm. talking about them. It doesn't talk about their audience. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's always talking about themselves, their their own products and services, what they offer to people. Never t- actually, they don't say the word mm-hmm. "you" in their content on on like their homepage and on even on their blogs. Mm-hmm. It's always about themselves. And it, and there's a lot of statistics uh, written that say basically that that it's it's higher if you talk about your audience mm-hmm. instead of talking about yourself. Yeah, the less you talk about cool. yourself, the more engaging you become. It's just about as simple as it could get. <laughs> so this leads in my, in my next question. You talked about return on investment uh, from having good content. So part of that is being empathetic. Do you consider any type of funnels through content to, uh, at all? You know how there's a lot of these funnels like – so th- there needs to be beyond intent and empathy and, and, and having good quality content doesn't – your piece of content have to lead somewhere or what do you think? Yeah, about I mean, that? I actually use the funnel. I, I actually um, kind of uh, advise people not to hate the funnel. Um, there's been a lot of hate in the marketplace on the, on the topic or the metaphor that the funnel is. And, but I was kind of, 
Yeah, and yeah, I need people no, back to the reason why the metaphor exists, and the, you know the the metaphor exists. And again, this is I could tell you the answer to the, to this question on any product category in about fifteen seconds. The funnel exists as a metaphor to show us that there are more people in the beginning stages of a buying journey than are at the end, and and so that's the that's why the funnel metaphor exists. There's a lot of people that are starting out. There's less people that are in the middle mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to get it done and what providers to look at. And then there's a, you know, a, a good proportion of those people, um, you know, a, a small percentage of those people that actually go and purchase something. And so, you know, I always use the sort of a shorthand version to say for every one person who's interested in buying your product, there's a hundred people that are entering the buyer's journey with a question that you can answer. And for every, you know, for, for every one person who's interested in buying your product, there's about 10 people that are deeply involved in understanding how to solve that problem. And you can answer those questions. So the, for me, the funnel exists as a, as an appropriate metaphor to just simply force companies to think about, do they create a hundred pieces of early stage content for every product um, visitors that, that comes to their website or every product piece of content? Do they create 10 times more content for every you know piece of product content that they have? In most organizations, it's flipped. It's 90% of the content is product, you know, maybe, maybe 8% is middle and you know, one or 2% is customer focused content. They've got it reversed. And, and that's the problem with most marketing, um, you know, with most content approaches today. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's counterproductive if a company distributes or a company or person distributes content that doesn't really lead it? It'll just kind of lead back to their blog. It doesn't really go anywhere after that. You think there needs to be some type of call to action or a conversion tool or something or. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. And what do you I think, think the point that? of my, the funnel, the, the point of the funnel I use is you need to create all of, uh, you need to create content for each stage of the buyer journey. And if you do, you'll naturally lead people from from an early stage question to a middle stage question to a potential product, um, you know, answer. Um, but you also need to, you know, that's from a content perspective. You also need to do that by type. And so, you know, like a listicle yeah. or an infographic or a, a short video um, explainer video, you know, logically leads to maybe an ebook that somebody might download and, and you know, have to give you their email address for. So it's not just content types, but content topics as well. And, and if you map those each to the buyer's journey, you're going to get people, you know, I almost hate to say it, but, you know, it's, it's not like you're forcing people through the funnel, which is why the funnel analogy is really awful. Um, but but you, they will naturally self-serve down the funnel. They will, they will move from an early stage. If you're answering all of their questions from early to middle to late, they will move on your site. You will be the provider of the answers to those questions by stage. So they'll naturally organically move down the funnel. Um, but, you know, in some cases it requires mm-hmm. a change in approach and optimizations and testing, obviously, to the types as well. And that's why, you know, I, I like I usually work with B2B companies on creating things like ultimate guides or buyer's guides because, you know, those are folks that are really interested in solving the problem and are really good, highly likely, you know, um, leads to turn into sales. But nobody's going to land on your site to download your buyer's guide unless you answer an earlier stage question first. And, you know, so maybe sometimes starting at the middle is a, is a good place to start. But when you do that, you have to answer all of the questions at each stage. And so, you know, you, by starting in the middle, you kind of force yourself back to the beginning and then you end up in the end. So it, it, I don't know if that made sense in speaking to it visually, I can show it when I'm pointing at the funnel, but, but uh, that's really the trick is, you know, get, get, you know, make sure you've got content at each stage of the journey and, you know, by topic and by type. Yeah. Understanding the buyer's journey. I know you spoke. I I saw your uh, your speech on. Um, the, you basically show this diagram, and um, 
I think it was the Content Marketing Institute. You've probably spoken there many times, mm-hmm. right? They had this conference and you talked about you talked about that. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So where do you think content marketing mm-hmm. is headed, Michael? Do you think cause because you know technology is evolving, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, automation, a video mm-hmm. is evolving uh every single day. Um, that's very hard to keep up with, in fact. But where do you mm-hmm. think it's headed? Do you any trends? So, you know, it's funny. Like I, I've done tr- predictions every year and I used to actually write a post on predictions and I've, I've so- kind of stopped doing it because the predictions I've made in each of the last probably eight years, um, many of them haven't really come true. <laughs> and so I've, I've found myself recycling <laughs> ones. But, uh, so I'll go back just one, just one year, 2017, uh, my predictions were basically the content would be would need to become more visual, more personalized, and more human. Um, and, and what I meant by that is, you know, visual, we're consuming more visual content. So video is important. Video is also very difficult for many brands to kind of wrap their hands around, um, uh, personalized in, in yeah. the, in the distribution, you know, the, the best newsletters that I get are newsletters from companies that have looked at the content consumption patterns that I've, I've, you know, had with them or in other places on the web. And they, they deliver something that's really right for me, um, Business Insider uses sale through as one example of a company, a media company and a technology provider that provides that kind of personalization. Um, one spot is a company that I've done some work with that does content personalization, you know, on, on your website or in your email, as well as off domain, meaning, you know, Michael, you might be on, you know, CNN, but you'll be seeing an article from my website because I knew you were there at one point. Um, so there are companies that do personalization pretty well. And then humanization is, is the topic that I leaned into on 2018. And, and the, the, the thought there is people, if you look at Edelman's trust barometer, they, they do a research every year that shows what people trust. And it's probably no surprise that media organizations mm-hmm. are being distrusted. Political, you know, p- politicians obviously are, are being, you know, certainly not trusted. Even executives in companies, um, even professors, um, folks, you know, thought leaders that used to be, you know, folks that we used to think of as, you know, really, really trustful sources of information. We're now starting to dis- distrust more and more. Who are we trusting? We're mm-hmm. trusting, mm-hmm. you know, typical employees of a company people who are just like me, my friends and my family. And so when I talk about humanization, what I mean is that the days of like reaching a million people with a, with a Super Bowl ad, the days of that having real impact are over because we don't trust ads. We don't trust messages from big brands. We don't care really even so much about spokespeople or CEOs or politicians. But when right. somebody that's just like me, a fellow employee, another professional in, you know, in the, in the world sort of shares the content um, shares the expertise that they have. Those are messages. Th- that's content that we're actually, you know, trusting more and more. Um, in fact, Edelman said it was it's up almost twenty five percent in the last five years. The amount of trust we have, that's you know, in content coming from oh, people just yeah. like us. So, so human humanization of content is is one of the big trends that I talked about in twenty seventeen. For twenty eighteen, and I and I don't want to go too long on this question, but in twenty eighteen, I've kind of combined some of those things, and I've said that marketing actually needs to take on culture. In order to create personalized and humanized messages, brands need to activate their employees. And and in order to do that, you need to have a culture of of employees that want to actually share what they love and what they know. (laughs) And so that's my big prediction for content in 2018 is is marketers need to start taking on culture inside their organizations and, and, you know, thinking about talent management, employee engagement, and, you know, some formerly thought of HR type topics, because the only content that's going to work in the future is content coming from somebody who's just like me. That's awesome. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's uh, some great insight. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. the humanization factor. You know, I think uh, as you see a lot of uh, even just watching TV, right? And there's so much, there's so much. I, I think that w- we need to really add more trust. Mm-hmm. There's not enough trust. You know what I mean? I, I, I think by um, going back to the empathy and, and uh, motives for what you're doing, um, people can trust you. And if they can trust yep. you, they're going to trust your content. That's it. At least I think. So mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I know you have a book, Michael. Tell me, tell us a little bit about yeah, your so book. Yeah, so I already mentioned it. It's The Content Formula. Uh, it's co-written by um, myself and Liz Bedore, who, who was a former colleague of mine at at, uh, at a content marketing technology company called NewsCred. We were both uh, working together. And um, we did a webinar. It's like kind of the funny story behind it is we did a webinar with 200 slides on math. And the reason for that was the biggest question we were getting from CMOs and marketers was, what's the ROI of content? And, you know, we, we always had good answers, but it never seemed to resonate. And so finally we said, you know, we're going to do a webinar. And, and it was, a, you know, it was an hour long. We, we had 200 slides. And we're like, no one's going to come to this thing. No one's going to like it. And we had like a thousand people register. 900 showed up. We had 15 people comment that we should turn that, you know, sort of content into a book. And so basically that's what we did. We kind of, you know, flipped it into a self-published Amazon uh, book within about three months. And, and, you know, it jumps right to the top of the marketing bestseller list within, within a month. We've got, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of a big deal in Japan, by the way, in case you were wondering about content marketing um, across the world, Japan is really into the content. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not not so sure if we're a big deal here in the United States, but, but, but Japan, I Why just think that, that they, that? you know, and I knew this from my days at SAP, um, you know, the, the, uh, I think China and Japan and, and, and many Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, um, are, are kind of ahead of us when it comes to content. Um, talk about noisy worlds. I mean, you know, think about, uh, think about all the content flying huh. around, um, you know, all the folks that are, that are on active and social in China. So, you know, they're kind of getting content yeah. marketing and, and figuring out the need to define ROI before, you know, even we did, but, but anyway, so the book was, was basically like, Hey, you can't read this book and not know the answer to the question. What's the ROI of content. And, you know, we talk about how to build the budget and, and get a, you know, define a business case that executives will buy into and then get down to the brass tacks of mm-hmm. actually measuring it with real math. And, and so that's the book. It's a, it's, you know, it's a practical book. It's not, you know, it's not going to win a Pulitzer prize. Um, it's not going to inspire you to go and create your next TED talk. But if you're struggling with the question of not just content ROI or content marketing ROI, but marketing ROI overall, um, then, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a quick, quick plane ride read that'll hopefully answer that question for you. Cool. Love it. I, I, I'm, I'm actually might even see if I can buy it on, mm-hmm. uh, it's on Amazon and we're also, we're, we're yeah, also, if you come to marketinginsidergroup.com, uh, you can get, get a PDF version that you can download, um, for half price. So, um, you know, I'm kind of, kind of trusting my audience cool. not to share it out after they buy it, but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's so much good stuff in there that I really want as many people to see it as we can. So we, we decided to go with that offer. Awesome. Michael. So, what advice, just to kind of you know, you know close things out here? What advice would you really give to B two B marketers so they don't make the same mistakes that you've encountered from you coaching and and teaching other other companies? Yeah, I mean, you know, probably the biggest frustration I've had is when I've worked inside bureaucracies, and and I think just about everybody, I, I think every company I've ever worked in was bureaucratic to some extent. Um, and so, you know, yeah. if I could go back and do it all over again, in every interview. Um, I would ask the question, are you willing to support 
the ideas that I have to my boss. You know, I, I would ask that question. Um, actually, I was interviewed by uh, Huffington Post on this, the one uh, one question to ask before your next job interview. And uh, because it's a real passion mm-hmm. for me, because I've had jobs that I've loved. I've had jobs where I've, I've had more success than, it, than you know, any, any time prior in my career. But I hated my job because I didn't really love my boss and my boss wasn't supportive. Um, and, and so, you know, nobody wants to go work for a bureaucrat (laughs) and there's so many inside, inside Uh companies, large and small, including nonprofits. Sometimes the politics are even expanded and amplified inside smaller organizations. And so that's, that's my one piece of advice. Mm -hmm. And it's not really marketing advice. It's kind of overall career advice, but ask your boss if they, if they support their team and the ideas that they have to the point where they're willing to build a business case and help, you know, sort of support, you know, visibly, vocally, uh, you know, publicly support um, new initiatives and new ideas that come from their team, as opposed to the typical management, you know, managing control style of, you know, the CEO told me what to do, and I'm telling you what to do. Um, You know, people just don't want that kind of job anymore. And maybe they never did, but I know I never did. And so that would be my advice. Love it. And I always ask these uh, three, so I call it the three hows. Every single person I'm interviewing, they have something different. Well, actually, that's not true. Some are very similar. I've had some some really different answers from uh, uh, from some people I've interviewed, but the, I always ask mm. the three hows. So how do you define failure? How do you define entrepreneurship? And how do you define success? Okay. So well, one at a time, right? So uh, how do I define failure? One at a time. Um, yeah, I think many people think of failure as a measurement against a yardstick. Um, and, uh, you know, Harvard did a study of, of, of people from um, like 100 years and they looked at the most successful people and they went back and, and they looked at some surveys that they did. It's one of the largest longitudinal studies ever done and uh, on success. And what they found mm-hmm. was that the one thing that attributed to success was not whether people had a yardstick and they measured themselves against it, um, but it was really whether they defined a mission for their life. And, and this kind of gets back to some of the stuff we talked about here. Um, so it's not whether you mm-hmm. wanted to become a millionaire and you are halfway there. It's whether you've defined a purpose or a mission for your life. So failure for me, and or, or I would say failure to your audience, is not having defined that mission for yourself. Um, it's not whether you've achieved the mortgage or the beautiful wife or the number of kids or husband or, um, you know, whatever those sort of superficial um, measures that we typically think of when we think of failure and success. But that would be my my um, my answer. Failure is not having defined your purpose in life. Cool. Well, that's definitely a different answer than a lot of these other uh other people that I've interviewed. So I love it. Love it. I like it, how everyone has these different, mm-hmm. different perspectives. And what do you think about entrepreneurship? What is entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everyone is an entrepreneur and, and that's something that I think, you know, many people get wrong. Some people think that, uh, you know, I'd love to go work for an entrepreneur. I'd love to start my own company someday. Um, you are an entrepreneur. You've, you've defined you the path of your life. So, you know, whatever, whatever it has been up to this point. And so um, entrepreneurship, I think is, is really going back to you know that that previous question. If you've defined your purpose, are you pursuing it? And that's entrepreneurship. Is is hey, you know, uh, the secret of life is what I know, what I love, and what the world wants. If you are chasing that, you know, the answer to those three questions, and you find yourself getting closer and closer to the middle of those three circles, then I think you're following an entrepreneur's path. Beautiful. Mm. And what about success? Well, I kind of answered it in the failure question, didn't I? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, um, 
if uh, I, I guess my my first instinct is to answer that question to say that success is when you are able to actually live your life for other people and and for some of us you know for me it was you know it's kind of like i said it's something i start my whole you know every single day with and and you know think about how thankful i am and 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 um optimistic and you know trying to be a positive voice in the world um not just in marketing but you know everything that i do um and being empathetic but but you know so i think success is is you know just being able to live for other people um and having the humility and and the strength to be able to do that uh, you know, when I see grumpy people, you know, somebody cuts me off and when I'm driving my car, I'm walking down the street, you know, these are people that are just facing trials and tribulations and they're, they're self, you know, obsessed. And, and, you know, when you have empathy, you can see that a little bit, I think, but um, we all get there at some point. And so success is being able to get outside of yourself and outside of your head and, and, you know, whether it's live for your family or live for your spouse or live for, you know, your, your, you know, your parents or, or, you know, or people in need, whoever they may be. But that to me would be success. Amazing, man. I love it. Oh, this is, this is all was so, so great. Uh, I think a lot of people can really learn from you and your insight and your knowledge and, um, this is this is exactly yeah. the reason why I do this. So I really appreciate it, uh, Michael. Where, where can yeah, everyone you can find, find you? Me, so my website is marketinginsidergroup.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Brenner Michael. So last name, first name, and um, certainly connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Facebook. Uh, I'm uh, pretty active on both of those platforms. Not too much on Instagram. I'm there, but it's pre- you know pretty much pictures of my kids. So pictures of my kids and pictures of margaritas on tropical destinations whenever I get to go. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> <What'd you laughs> exactly. But yeah, feel free to reach out. I'd love to connect and, and happy to help anybody if you have any questions. Perfect. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. It was an honor having you here and can't wait to, uh, to, for this yeah. episode to launch. I think it's going to, like I said, it's going to help a lot of people. Thanks. So really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening. This is Michael Giorgio, your host on Tales from the Pros and until next time.